Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, thank you, Wes, and thank you, Aaron. Uh, Thank you for joining us. This morning as we worship together, thank you for joining us online. And if you are joining us for the first time, this is a great Sunday to start because we are getting into our new series called Crucial Questions, which we have been really excited about for a long time. We're going to be looking at some of the most frequently asked questions about the Bible, about Christianity, and about culture and how all of those things relate together. As a preaching team, we've been getting excited about this for about two months now. We've been planning it, and obviously a lot has changed in the past two months, But we're still really excited about this series because we're taking actual questions that you guys have submitted online through our website, and we're going to be answering those questions throughout this series. And so speaking of that, uh, we're going to be going through this series throughout the entire summer. We've planned a lot of the weeks already, but there are still a lot of weeks left where we can fill in some questions and, and answer some questions with those weeks. So if you have a question that comes up or you haven't had a chance to get onto our website yet, go on, submit your question, and you might see your question answered through this series. So um, if you are relatively new, though, to the Christian faith, um, I'm glad that you are with us as we start this series. And I want to encourage you to stay with us through this series as we go forward. Our answers are going to be focused on speaking both to Christians and to non-Christians. So some of what we might say uh, throughout this series might be a little bit strange. You might be caught off guard by some of the language that we use, words that we use here and there. Um, But if it doesn't feel like it it relates immediately, trust me, it will relate to you and it will be relevant throughout the series as we go through it. Um, and, And at any time, obviously, you can ask for further clarification. You can get on our website Submit a question to ask for further clarification, or you can email us as well, and we'd be happy to respond. But a big part of the purpose of this series is to define for us what it is as Christians that we actually believe, which is a good thing for Christians to know, but it's also a good thing for non-Christians to know, because um, we really feel like it's important for us to be able to define what it is that we actually believe versus how we might be characterized or misrepresented at times. You're going to get a chance to hear through this series, in other words, what it's like what we understand from a Christian perspective on the Bible and how we engage culture and what it's like to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak. With that being said, I want to lay a little bit of the ground rules for this series, if you will. We are committed to providing you with the most biblically faithful answer to each question as much as we can understand it, which means that we are coming from these questions in terms of what the Bible has to say about it. And over the course of the series, you're going to hear from each of the three members of our preaching team, which are actually three pastors on our staff here at North Bible, but we're all committed to the same thing. We want to illuminate for you what the Bible has to say, because as we're going to get to in a moment, we believe that the Bible is God's word, so we're trying to communicate what does God have to say about these topics, rather than just what our opinion might be about these things. At the same time, though, you will hear some opinions come through at times, especially on those issues where there might be multiple interpretations of a certain topic, or especially on those issues where like things have been debated in the church for 2,000 thousand years. We're not arrogant enough to believe that we're going to solve these debates that have been going on for 2,000 years in the church through one sermon series. So you will hear different perspectives on these issues as we go through it, which brings us to the guiding principle for this series as well, how we're going to approach these topics. And it's summed up really in a quote that's been attributed to everybody from Blaise Pascal to Augustine, and it's essentially this, on the essentials unity, on the non-essentials liberty, on all things charity. 
In other words, on, we're united on all the essentials of our faith. And we're going to make a point to clarify what those essentials are about the Christian faith. These are things that are orthodox Christian beliefs that make Christianity unique, and they relate to things like salvation and biblical authority and other key doctrines. These are the things that are expressed clearly in the Bible and have been agreed upon across denominations and generations of the church. But those are the, So those are the essentials. But there are also things that we're going to talk about that are kind of non-essentials, that would fall under the umbrella of non-essentials. That doesn't mean that they're not important. In fact, many of them are very important, but it does mean that they're not necessary for salvation and for biblical orthodoxy. These are some of the wider theological issues that churches from differing denominations disagree on, and maybe different generations have had different uh, ideas on these things. But these are the kinds of issues that we can still disagree on, and we can still be considered true Christians who believe in the orthodox uh, Orthodox Christianity. Now, some of these issues are more central than others. There's a spectrum really on these things, and really on some of the edges of the spectrum, there might be some disagreement among the perspectives of the people who are part of our preaching team, which is going to be a lot of fun to engage with. But it's at that point, of course, that we need to remember that last part of this directive on all things charity or on all things love. In everything that we talk about, we're going to love each other through it. We're going to love each other through the disagreements, even when we disagree. And that doesn't just go for the people who are presenting here uh, on this stage and presenting here as we go through this uh, series, but also for those of you who are participating and listening and being a part of this series as well. That all of us, even though we may disagree on some things, want to continue to love one another even through the disagreement. Because I can pretty much guarantee you, you may hear one or two things throughout this series that you might not fully agree with. And in those times, as long as they're not essentials, we can disagree and we can still love each other in unity. Okay, so with all that being said, with the ground rules established, the guiding principle established, let's start in with our first question for the uh, Crucial Questions series today. We're going to be starting with a question about the Bible this morning, because as we said, this is a biblically guided series, and we want to stick to what God has to say about these things. We don't just want to present our opinions, but we want to present what the Bible has to say. So it's reasonable for us to start with a question about the Bible. And the question that we're starting with today sounds um, really basic, but in reality, it's essential in order for us to establish the answer to this question so that we can move forward in this series. And it's this this question. What can we expect from the Bible? And when we ask that question, we're asking it kind of in the broadest terms possible. When we come to the Bible and open up the Bible, what is it that we should expect as we engage with reading it, as we engage with uh, listening to it, obeying it, those kinds of things? And so we're going to answer questions like this more specifically this morning. What is the purpose of the Bible? How should we read the Bible? And what place should the Bible have in our lives? So before we do anything, I think it makes sense for us to talk about what is the purpose behind the Bible. You may know this, but the Bible is the greatest selling book of all time, translated into more languages uh, than any other book in human history. It's the most discussed book, the most revered book, and the most well-known. So what exactly is it then? Well, first of all, the Bible is not just one book. It's actually a collection of 66 different books, more like a library or a treasury, if you prefer that. It's mainly written in two different original languages, Hebrew for the Old Testament and mainly Greek in the New Testament, by over 40 different human authors spanning 1,500 years of history. Now, these human authors in include a wide range of people from wide range of backgrounds and occupations. We have some who are religious teachers, prophets, kings, poets, musicians, shepherds, a tax collector, a doctor, and a fisherman, just to name several. 
And the text of the Bible employs several different types of literary forms, including things like history, poetry, narratives, letters, and apocalyptic literature. So the span of history, the types of authors, and the types of literature used in the Bible makes it the most unique book that has ever been written. But those things aren't the only thing that makes the Bible unique. In fact, what makes the Bible most unique is the fact that it claims to be the actual words of God. And when we read the Bible, it's, God tells us that he has written this himself. And so when we say that the Bible has all of these different human authors, these are the human authors that God uses to write his words. So these authors didn't write by their own opinions or their own authority. They wrote because God appointed them to write, and they wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we have the very words of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So although we have human, his, human authors who wrote in history and God uses their backgrounds and their personalities and their knowledge to write down his words, he has breathed out his word through these people who have written down his words. When we see in 1 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God, that gives us the impression of the Holy Spirit who has inspired people to speak God's very words. Now, if God is the ultimate author, though, and it is his words that we are reading, it makes sense then that, we, that how we answer this question, what should we expect from the Bible, should come from God's understanding of what we should expect from the Bible. In other words, we should be coming to the Bible on God's terms. And what we should expect from the Bible is what God actually wants us to expect from his words. So, as John Stott says, the true meaning of the biblical text for us is what God originally intended it to mean when it was first spoken or written. This is the starting point. So our starting point, whenever we open the Bible, is to ask ourselves, what is it that God intended for me to get out of this? Now, this is important to realize because I don't know that we always understand this, but we have a certain proclivity sometimes to use God's word for whatever we want to. Even when we have the best intentions, what we bring to the text impacts our understanding and interpretation of this. One of the worst public examples of this happened back on April 17th in 1960. It was Easter Sunday, and Bob Jones Sr., um, who was a pastor in South Carolina, preached a sermon entitled, Is Segregation Scriptural? Now remember, this is in 1960. It was on Easter Sunday. It went out throughout the entire state of South Carolina on the radio waves at the time. And at the time, six years earlier, the Supreme Court had decided in Brown versus the Board of Education that all schools in the U.S. should be integrated. And a week before this sermon, um, the uh, Congress passed the Civil Rights Bill of 1960. Now, Bob Jones, just to get in, if you don't know who Bob Jones Sr. is, he founded Bob Jones University, but was also somebody who grew up in the South his entire life, was born in 1890 in South Carolina, and was the son of a Confederate soldier. So his perspective on this was a little bit different, probably, than what ours would be. But What's, what's, what's most disturbing is not necessarily that Bob Jones was a segregationist, which he surely was, but what's most disturbing about this is how he uses Scripture and how he used the Bible to prove that segregation between blacks and whites was actually God's will. Listen to this. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 was the main verse he used in that sermon, and he said this, and it says this, I should say, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he took that verse and he said that this verse is as clear as anything that was ever said to prove that God is in favor of segregation between whites and blacks. And his conclusion was highlighted by these kinds of statements. It makes me sick when a preacher talks about the integration of races. These religious liberals are the worst infidels in many ways in the country. They do not believe in the Bible any longer. They are leading the white people astray. If you are against segregation and against racial separation, then you are against God Almighty. Let's get back to the Word of God and be sensible. Now, these kinds of statements are fortunately unthinkable for us today, and they were for many Christians of that day as well. But it was perfectly reasonable for a man like Bob Jones, who was so ingrained in, with his own bias and presuppositions that he couldn't see the Bible clearly, and yet he claimed that he was the only one who could see it clearly. Shows you how quickly things can get out of hand when it comes to biblical interpretation. Because if you want to, obviously you can make the Bible say almost anything you want. And it's not because people believe in this case that they're wrong. It's because they think they're right about what the Bible says that makes this so dangerous. Because that's one of the most dangerous things to believe about ourselves when we read the Bible is that we have the ability to read the Bible completely objectively. We don't. Every single one of us brings something to the text when we read it. These things are commonly known as presuppositions, but we have a background, we have life experiences, we have theology, we have education, and a myriad of other things that form our presuppositions when we come to read the Bible. And here's the thing, is that presuppositions are unavoidable. We all have them. What we need to do is recognize that we do have presuppositions and make sure that we have the right ones rather than the wrong ones. So what does that mean? Well, here are a few things that we need to know. I'm going to give you four things that we need to know in order to have the right presuppositions about the Bible so that we can, we can better understand God's words on his terms. The first one is this, is that God's word is God's words. And I know that's not good English, but it's essentially saying that what we call the Bible, what we call God's word, is just that. It is God's personal words to us. In the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, which tells the story about how God saves his people Israel and brings them out of Egypt, he introduces, the first thing he does is introduce himself to Israel in Exodus 19. And he says, this is who I am and this is who you are. And then he goes on to give them the law, he gives them the covenant, and he gives them all the ways that they're supposed to live. But notice the first thing he does is he gets to know, or he wants them to get to know him personally. And he says, you're not just living out these laws just to live out laws because they're good things to do. You're living out these laws because they will remind you every time you do them of the character of who I am. And more than anything, that's what God wanted them to know. In the book of Exodus, in fact, there's no greater example of this, the personal nature of God's word, than in Exodus 34, and it starts in verse 4. It says this, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin." But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
Now Moses had broken the first two tablets in anger over idolatry with the Israelites. That's a whole other story. But when he gets the second tablets where the Ten Commandments are written on, the first thing God does is introduce, is again repeat who he is and his character. He's loving, he's kind, he's faithful, he's slow to anger, but he's also just and holy and righteous and righteous. This is important to realize because God is telling us, again, my words are meant to communicate who I am. And what I want you to know more than anything is to know me. I think this is important to remember because the first mistake that many people often make when they come to the Bible is how they answer the basic question of, what am I supposed to get out of this when I read it? They go to the Bible for many reasons, and some of those reasons are for inspiration or for teaching about ethics or for encouragement about their situation or direction on how to live. Some just go to the Bible for truth. But look, as much as the Bible certainly gives truth and direction in our lives, teaches us how to live ethically, and yes, gives us inspiration and encouragement and all of those things, none of those things are the main point of the Bible. God has given us his word so that we can know him. And if we come to the Bible and we miss God in it, we miss the entire point. So to see this from God's perspective, it's a little like if you bought a couple of tickets to a sporting event or a play or the theater. And your intention was to give them to your spouse so that you could go out and have a date night and enjoy the night together. And you give, them, you give them to your spouse, and your spouse takes them, and instead of inviting you to come, invites a friend to come with them. And they say thank you, and they're appreciative of it, and they enjoy the event. Oh, this is the event. This is the event I've always been wanting to go to. This is a sporting event I've, I've, I've been thinking about for months. Thank you so much, sweetheart. I'm going to really, really enjoy this. And your spouse takes their friend instead of you. The event's great, and it's a big part of, of course, the celebration of that night. But it's not ultimately the point for which you bought the tickets. The point you bought the tickets for is so that you could spend time with your spouse, and for them to take somebody else is, a com- is to completely miss the point of why the tickets were bought in the first place. Above all, look, God's word is God's words to us so that we can know him. He gives us ethics so that we can actually live out his character in the world. He gives us wisdom so that we can understand how he's designed this this world to function. And yes, he inspires us and gives us encouragement with his word so that we can have faith and hope in what he has promised for us. But it all comes back to who he is. And I think one of the main reasons why people give up on reading the Bible is that they don't actually focus on meeting God through his words. And when that happens, when that's taken out, the Bible becomes little more than a spiritual self-help book, and we all know that those things run out pretty quickly. But the Bible wasn't made for that kind of thing. So the first thing we need to know, the first presupposition we need to take to the text is that God's word is God's words. The second one is this. God's word tells God's story. Earlier, we said that the Bible was written in a lot of different forms by different human authors over 1,500 years of history. And taken together, the Bible is more is a story, but it's more than just a story. It is the story of everything. It focuses on God's uh, redemptive activity to save and redeem his creation. So it's actually the story of salvation. And there are a few different ways that theologians throughout the years have classified and kind of broken down the story of Scripture, but in the most general fashion, it's kind of like this. There are four acts of the story. The first one is creation, the second one is fall, the third is redemption, and the fourth is restoration. And going through the details of this is probably a message for another time, but essentially what this tells us is that God created 
for good, for his glory, with shalom, peace, and wholeness everywhere. Human beings disobeyed God and rebelled against him and his authority, and so that caused the fall. And then the fall immediately leads to redemption, which basically takes up the entire Bible almost, from Genesis chapter 3 specifically, basically to about Revelation 21. And then from redemption, we move into the hope of restoration, which is the result of the redemptive activity of Jesus, which is all pointed at the death and resurrection of Jesus, which, of course, we celebrated last week. Now, here's the point of this, though. It's critical for us to know the story and how it all fits together because at any given time that we're reading at any place in the Bible, like let's say you're doing a devotional in 2 Kings, you have to realize that 2 Kings is connected to the story of Scripture. It's connected not only to the other chapters around the place that you're reading, but it's connected to the wider story so that it's connected to Genesis as well as it's connected to the New Testament and other places in the Old Testament. And so... I think that's an important point to make because I'll often hear people say, you know, I really don't get a lot out of the Old Testament. I, I open it up and I read it and it's so confusing and it seems so archaic. Um, I, I really, I, I've kind of given up on reading the Old Testament in general. And look, I get it. There's been places in the Old Testament where I read 10 different times. I'm not sure I really understand what it's actually saying. But I will say this, there's a real sense to where you can't understand the depth of the New Testament without knowing the Old Testament, because it's the first part of the story, and it's always been designed to go together as one cohesive unit and one cohesive narrative. In this way, the Bible is a lot like reading any other story. Or maybe if you can think of your favorite movie, especially like an epic movie series like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or something like that, I find every time a new Star Wars movie has come out, I've got to, when I sit down with my kids, I've got to explain to them all the backstory that's happened because they haven't seen all the original episodes. So I've got to go back to the original trilogy in some cases to explain what's happening in front of us. And it's the original trilogy, but it's also the second trilogy. So anyway, but the point is, is that I've got to fill in the gaps for them. And as I fill in the gaps for them, what they're actually watching in the newer movie adds much more layers of depth to it. And the Bible is a lot like that. And that it can, is that the more that you can connect to the story, the more you understand what has come before and what you're looking forward to, the more you'll understand what you were reading at any given point. And on this point as well, Another thing that's critical about understanding the Bible as a story is that Jesus is the main character of all of Scripture. Another way we can say this is that Jesus is the hero of the story. So much so that I think it's actually helpful for us to read through, what's, through a perspective that's known as a Christotelic perspective. And what does Christotelic mean? It's just real, two, two really clear words. First one is Christ. It refers, of course, to Jesus. And telic comes from a Greek word, telos, that means the purpose or the goal or end result. So when we're reading Scripture Christotelically, what we're saying is that everything that I'm reading ultimately is pointing in some way to its ultimate purpose, who is Jesus. Genesis 3.15 says this, and it establishes this for us. And This is God in the midst of the curse that has happened after the sin of Adam and Eve, and he says this to the serpent, to Satan, but it's also a promise to Adam and Eve as well. And I will put, this is Genesis 3.15, and I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will attack your head and you will attack her offspring's heel. Now this is God addressing Satan, as I said, but it's also a promise to Adam and Eve right after their sin. It's a promise, essentially, that an offspring will come. And an offspring will come to crush the head of the serpent. Now what exactly does that mean? Well, theologians have rightly recognized this as what they call the proto-evangelium, which means the first gospel. This is the first place in Scripture 
where the gospel of Jesus is actually spelled out for us. Because that offspring from this point forward points us forward in the redemptive story to Jesus, who we, believe, who we understand and believe is ultimately the one that God is talking about here in Genesis chapter 3. And notice it starts in the third chapter of the book. And so from the very beginning, all the way from Genesis chapter 3, essentially through the rest of the book, this is the trajectory of the redemptive story of God. And it goes all the way through Scripture. It is the main focus of everything that God is doing redemptively in Scripture. Which is why John Stott says, whenever we read the Bible, we must look for Christ. And we must go on looking until we see and believe. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says this, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So then, in the Old Testament, at least starting with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, everything is looking forward to Jesus in the Old Testament. And everything in the New Testament points back to Jesus, but then also points forward to Jesus' second coming. But it all comes back, Christotelically, to Christ. So God's word tells God's story. Third presupposition that we need to have when we come to Scripture, if we're going to get out of it what we're supposed to, is God's Word represents God's authority. You know, the Bible opens up with God speaking. You may have noticed this when you open up to the very first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We get just a brief introduction. It's like two verses, and then by the third verse, Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, we jump right into action. And that verse says this, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Look, the activity and the action of the Bible starts with God speaking. And notice how this verse is phrased in particular. This is God literally bringing things into existence that had not existed before. And this is a big one, light. And he simply speaks it into existence. I mean, how powerful are those words? Because God speaks it, there's no hesitation, there's no intermediate waiting period, it just happens. Now, what is this supposed to tell us about God's word when he speaks then? Well, if all things are spoken into existence, showing us that God's, it shows us then that God's words have authority over everything that has existed because God spoke it into existence. Does that make sense? So his words actually exercise authority. Since he spoke it into existence, his words exercise authority over every single created thing. In short, his words, whenever he speaks, have authority by their nature and by their effect. This is why we can look at a place like Isaiah 55 and have confidence when God says this, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Look, as we covered, God's words in the Bible are God's primary chosen way to reveal himself to us. And that word revelation actually refers to something that, we need, the something that we know only by it being revealed to us. In other words, as human beings, it's not something we could come up with our own through human reasoning or imagination. It's something that has to be actually revealed to us, otherwise we would not know it. And we can say that God reveals himself in all kinds of different ways. He reveals himself through creation. He reveals himself through experience. But none is as important and authoritative as the Bible as far as God's revelation goes. So every other experience of revelation actually should be interpreted through Scripture. 
For instance, if I were to tell you that God revealed himself to me through this amazing experience, I had a dream or a vision, and God told me to go to the top of four peaks. And I go up there and an angel meets me, and an angel has all these golden tablets that this angel gives me and says to me, essentially, look, the Bible as you have it is actually full of flaws. And these are the golden tablets that God has given you in order to correct those flaws. Now, if I came back to you down here next Sunday and had these golden, and told the story about these golden tablets and said, look, these are some things we need to add to the Bible, how would you react? Well, hopefully, hopefully you wouldn't believe me and hopefully I'd be fired on the spot. Because, by, because God's word says that it is true and complete. And we believe that every other thing is subject to it, even if I may claim that I saw God and an angel and he spoke to me about it. Now, you may recognize that story as a bit of a derivative of the story of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, who explained that he had a revelation of God's words, and it happened much like that in his case. But what Joseph Smith did first is that he discredited the Bible. He said that the Bible that we have now is flawed and that the Book of Mormon and these other writings that he got from these golden tablets corrected the flaws in the Bible. Now, we'll talk, uh, you know, we can talk a little bit about why we can trust the Bible in the form we have it today, but you can see what happens when you begin to d discredit the Bible's authority. We can make it say, again, whatever we want it to. God's words represents God's authority, which then leads us to our last presupposition, number four. God's word demonstrates God's power. Now, we just talked about how God's word is seen, or God's power, excuse me, is seen in his creative word in the creation account. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, his word today has life-changing effects in our lives so that it changes us even today. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13 is one that we may be familiar with. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's word is living and active. It didn't die when it hit the page. It's not just about all these stories that happened thousands of years ago. It is, it is, it is God's word that continues to live and be active and have power in our lives today. It's not about what God has done. It's about what God has done and what he is still doing and what he will do. And in God's speaking or in God's words, there is authoritative action that comes from this. Again, in the creative narrative, God spoke things into existence. He didn't say it and then it happened. And then he waited for it to happen. He spoke and then it happened immediately. His speaking was the action and was the power. Now, this is really something personal for me because a good friend of mine who has been a mentor for me for many years and is now a retired pastor um, grew up as an atheist. In fact, he grew up as a pretty aggressive atheist. And when he got into college, he had a bunch of friends who were around him who were Christians. And so he decided one day that he was going to buy a Bible and read through the Bible and start to disprove all the things that he thought were so silly and all the things he thought were missed throughout the Bible. And he was going to read through it and basically disprove it so that he could convince his friends not to be Christians anymore. That was his end goal, as he would say. And as, but a funny thing happened on his way to disproving the Bible. He started reading it, and as he was reading it alone, he became more and more convinced that what he was reading was actually true. And he became a Christian, and his life was changed just simply by reading the Bible on his own. 
Nobody taught him it. Nobody explained it to him. Nobody was teaching. Nobody knew he was doing it on his own. And just through reading the Bible, these living and active words, it changed his life. He, of course, became a Christian and then was a pastor of a church here in the Phoenix area successfully for many years. He's made a big influence in my life. And so just by the fact that he read Scripture, it changed not only his life, but my life and many others. And we have stories like this all the time throughout the history of the Bible because God's words have a unique power to change lives. It is living because the God who speaks those words and his spirit are living and active. So as we get to the end of this, look, the question of what we can expect from the Bible is a critical one. That's, of course, an appropriate question to start our series with. As we answer all of these questions, again, we are focusing on a biblical perspective, so we want to answer this question, what should we expect as we ask these questions? But all of this is more than just a theological and academic pursuit. It is the pursuit of a personal God who pursues us with his words. His words have power to save and to redeem and to promise a hope and a future. Scripture, when we read it, calls a response of faith from us. It's a call that God gives us to personally trust in the one who has given us his personal words so that we might know him. And we are shown the great story of all that God has done. We are presented with not just something to know about, not just with a story to read, but with something to believe and something that changes our lives. And this is the result of reading the Bible that we need to strive for. The Bible is different than any other book that we could read for this reason. It aims that our lives would be changed, that it is living and active, and its end result is faith and trust in God. Because biblical faith is not blind faith. We're given the biblical record because it is an account of all that God has done. It's empirical evidence of a God who works in the world and brings about his purposes. You know, God didn't say, hey, I'm God, so just listen to what I have to say. He could have certainly done that. The Bible would have been a lot shorter in that case. But he does more than that. He, he gives us a record of his goodness, his faithfulness, of his grace. And his word is powerful because it can be trusted that these words are God's words. I guess this is important to remember because two of the biggest struggles, I think, for all of us when we come to God's word are not reading it enough. And then when we read it, not feeling that it is actually powerful and relevant in our lives enough to make a difference. That's either because we don't understand it well or either because it comes off as, as boring or irrelevant. Whatever it may be, whatever it may be, where we approach God's expectation for us approaching his living word is different. And I think if we can cherish God's words that they are really his living words to us, not dead laws and rules on a page, but meant to change us as we get to know him more and more, if we can get there, I think our commitment to God's word will increase and its power will have God's intended effects on us, that, we, that our lives change as we get to know him more and more. And maybe we get to the point where every time we open up God's word, we say this with the psalmist from Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Isn't that how you want to feel every time you open up your Bible? I know I do, and I know it comes when we can trust God enough to let his words be his words. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful that, as we've talked about today, Lord, if we, uh, if we had to rely on our own imagination and our own reasoning to understand who you are, we would be completely lost. 
And Lord, you understand that about us. And so one of the ways that you have demonstrated your love is to give us your word to us, your personal word that tells us about who you are. It is your personal revelation to us so that we would know who you are, we would know what you have done, we would know how much you love us, and we would know the hope and the future that you have promised for us. And above all, that we would know the good news gospel that is in Jesus Christ. And so, uh, Lord, we know that we can't manufacture all the time our own desire to want to engage in your word. There are all kinds of reasons that we get distracted and we don't read the Bible enough. I think all of us could probably say that at one time or another. And so we ask, Lord, that you would create in us a desire by your spirit. Just like the psalmist said here in Psalm 119, that your words would be sweeter than honey to us. That as we open up, we would open up with the anticipation of knowing, Lord, that you meet us right there in your words. These words are not dead words on a page. They are living and active, and they have the power to change our lives now and for eternity. And for that, we thank you. Lord, I pray that all of us would begin to trust in your word more, that we would cherish it for what it really is. That you would help us to see blind spots in our minds where we have been led to believe that your word is boring or it's irrelevant or it doesn't matter much to my life. But Father, that we would see it and we would approach it from the same expectation in which you've intended it to be read and you've intended it to be understood. So Lord, would you do that in us by your spirit? And we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you for the treasury and the goodness of your word. We know that as much as uh, we may not read it and engage with it, with it as much as we should, we all can remember times if we are Christians in our lives where your word has meant so much to us. And for that, we thank you and we praise you this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. All right, everyone, thanks again for joining us today. I want to remind you that as we continue through our Crucial Questions series, it gives you an opportunity to go onto our website and ask more questions. If you need to ask a question to follow up with what we've talked about today, be sure to email us or submit your question online, and we'll be sure to pay attention to that and respond to it uh, as we can. So again, I hope that just this week, hopefully even tomorrow or today as you open up God's Word for the next time, that it would be sweeter than it was the day before as we pray together that God would continue to change us and lead us by His Word, especially at a time where we need to hear good news and we need to hear truth, which is certainly what God's Word brings to us, that, he, that, that, that we would know that He has given it to us through His Word. And uh, God bless you as you continue uh, to engage with God this week, and may He be personally known to you as you do. Thanks, and have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.